Hello, I'm Josephine Burton and welcome back to the Dash Arts podcast, seeing the world through an artistic lens. Dash is all about crossing and travelling across borders, across art forms, languages, cultures, communities and nations. And I'm aware that often so many of these borders are ignored, exploited or silenced. And so we've dedicated this podcast as part of our Breaking Silences series to some extraordinary international artists who are attempting to explore and heal, bridge and give voice to some of these silences. We begin with Krzysztof Kuszewski, a theatre director and founder of Borderlands, or Pogranice, an inspiring arts organisation based in an old white synagogue in Sany in northeastern Poland, who I met many years ago. As I was thinking a little bit about um, the, the artists that I wanted to speak to or who, who inspired me or who were involved in these issues, I was thinking a lot about your work in Pogranice and at Borderlands. Um, I visited in 20, nearly 20 years ago, and which inspired me then and continues to inspire me today. I wondered if you might be able to tell me a little bit about the founding of Borderlands and, um, and the work that you've done there. Thank you, uh, Josephine, to invite, uh, for this invitation and for letting me speak about silence also in this context of silence in culture, which is very close to me. Just one thing before I, I, I tell something about the borderland. Uh, when I was a director, uh, artistic director of European Capital of Culture in Wroclaw and preparing the program, my idea was to create a year of silence before Wroclaw becomes uh, European Capital of Culture. A year of, you know, being uh, slow, calm down for preparation, for to feel. But this is something I believe we lost in culture. We have event after event and no breaks. And maybe this pandemic time helps to think more about slowing down, being more intimate and silent. Uh, coming back to, uh, to the borderland, it was my... Uh, team I work with, uh, it was an avant-garde uh, avant alternative theater and the autumn of nations came in 1989. We decided to stop our activity on the festivals, on traveling, you know, from one international festival to another and to uh, travel to the east, to have a journey to the east. Uh, in Poland, we ended up as close to the Soviet at that time border as it was possible. Uh, today is the border with Lithuania and Belarus, uh, but the, at that time was a Soviet border. And we decided not to pass through the small town Seine as usually we did before as theater troupe, but to stay now for 30 years. Uh, and this was for us really a revolutionary decision, not to stop be on permanent travel as artist, as a theater group, but to, to stop to, to establish life among the people with the concrete community, borderland community, and to develop artistic educational programs along 
the challenges, necessities, you know, problems we faced uh, in that community, in that particular context. That was the beginning of, of the borderland. And uh, the name of our center and foundation is, is very important. In Polish, it, it sounds pogranicze. Uh, in English, uh, it is sometimes misleading translation borderline foundation or borderline center. And to explain why it is not borderline, but borderland says a lot about our work and our philosophy. So it's not about strict divisions, you know, borders which cuts the community or the, into different sides or so on, but it's about the land, common land, common place, common memory, where borders are in sight. Um, ethnic borders, cultural borders, generation borders, all kinds of borders, but you embrace it as, as a whole, belonging to, to the same community. And art of living in such context is art of bridging, of you know crossing to other side, being aware or experiencing differences, borders, conflicts, traumatic memories, all that. But there's no way to live without bridges, yeah, without communication, without uh, establishing the space for dialogue or coexistence. So it was. Uh, that's how the borderland started, in fact, you know, to to understand what this tradition of borderland is, uh, not the borderline, no, not the strict, you know, national borders of national states or so on, but multicultural or intercultural community. My impression and memories of when I was there is, as you say, it wasn't necessarily a national borders because national borders have always been so blurred, haven't they, particularly in northeastern Poland. It's sometimes been part of Poland, it's sometimes been part of Russia, it's sometimes been part of uh, Lithuania. <laughs> um, but it was also the many, many peoples that have lived in that area. That was why we decided to to leave and establish our center in that region. You know, it was during communist time, we had this experience that we live in homogeneous country. You know, it's only Polish language, Catholic religion, and that's it. Coming back to this question of silence, do you feel when you arrived there back in kind of 89, 90, that time that you started to settle, did you feel that there was just this great wall of silence around the, the heterogeneity of the cultures there? Yes, indeed. It was um, this very specific silence from the communist era, you know, better not to speak about uh, difficult uh, things from the past, uh, better not to share it with your children, uh, children or grandchildren. Better for the future because uh, to know it, you know, to be involved in in that, it was kind of danger, you know, that that you you will be stigmatized and persecuted by uh, communist authorities. Everything what belongs to the past was stigmatized by communists as something wrong in shadow. Now, we are building new world and only new things are good. So this was one kind of silence uh, toward the past. Another kind was 
concerning conflicts, even wars. You know, there was a Polish-Lithuanian war uh, in that borderland. After First World War, you know, 1990-1920, Poles and Lithuanians uh, had a battle about a newly designed border between our countries, uh, a new border. Never before this borderline existed in that region. So it was like to divide people even within the families. You know, one part of the family was on one side of the border, another on the other. It was a fresh process of creating a new national identities. Uh, and it was sometimes a matter of free choice. You know, you you could become a Lithuanian or Polish or Belarusian or Jewish, um, and it was up to your decision. Sometimes, so sometimes it happens that in the same family, in one family, the brother chose to be Lithuanian or and, and the sister Polish. After all, were put into the silence. Don't speak about that. Don't speak to your children in families that they have, being Polish families, they have Lithuanian aunts or Jewish grandmother. Uh, don't speak about that. Yeah, we just, we live in Polish uh, homogeneous world. It's the same was with Lithuanians uh, and so on. So uh, what I tell, uh, told you before about the borderland, about this the connective tissue between different people, which created a kind of uh, culture, spiritual uh, heritage, uh, was destroyed and into the pieces. It was like a mosaic which breaks into the pieces, small units which are now separated. So our role became to speak up about this, to dig uh, up into the ground of these memories and to work with young generation about the roots, about the, the family past, you know, about the neighbors, about the, the borderland as, uh, as it was in, in the past. And Christoph, I, I remember very strongly and very strikingly from my visit a performance in Polish. I have a memory that, that the young people in Seine had asked their grandparents the stories of what the village was like were growing up and then they'd make you'd made a piece of theater from from those stories is that is that correct yes yes your your memory is right it was called Sane chronicles and still we perform it it's very special performance and now 25 years from the premiere and we perform it uh, from one generation to another generation you know this is a a story of the town, of living together in, in town, in different languages, uh, in different, with different songs, dances, and stories collected from old people, yes, from uh, all kinds of backgrounds they, they, uh, they have. So young people in Seine, when they uh, go to our uh, theater, uh, they are introduced, they have 
two uh, they have tutors of the older generation of their colleagues who are just after five six years leaving say in the chronicles and making room for a new generation who who somehow is uh, incarnated you know into the uh, the same stories but also enriched by new stories they collect and so the performance is growing but the very important thing about this is that it is common story you know that after all these pieces different languages crumbs of memories histories you collect under one roof uh, which creates home for everybody who was living and is living here and this is how we try to create the borderland in form of theater performance can you tell me a little bit Christoph, about how the communities have reacted to your work breaking the silences through art thank you for this question because it's crucial of course we were outsiders coming to the small town artists gypsies as people from the beginning were telling about us or later when they realized that we start to deal also with Jewish culture or Jewish memories they, they used some of them they used to say oh Jews came to our time town we were from the beginning the others yeah who came and uh, and the crucial thing was to build a trust uh, between us and the community. And uh, so the first decision we, we made at the beginning was uh, to stop being a theater uh, as, uh, as it was before. So we came as a theater troupe, you know, performing a few times in synagogue. But then the question was, what, what, what's next? And the next was to stop being a theater, to go, to, uh, to come down from the stage to, to the people to hear them, to listen, to speak to them. Young people were our messengers. So the first connection we've made was with young people in Seine. We offered them different artistic studios, you know, film, theater, music. Um, let's do something in art. But on that way, we put these questions, okay, but what about you? What about your family history? What, the, what about the history of, of, our, of that town? Is it interesting for you? Does it matter? It became fascinating somehow for, for young people. And from the beginning, old people were saying like that, okay, you are newcomers, you are greenhorns, you don't know nothing about this, what we pass, you know, in the 20th century, all these tragedies and so on. And we, we keep our memories, we keep our truths, but the way you work with our children and grandchildren is good for the future. Christoph mentioned that the older generation found it difficult to talk about the traumas because they're so much closer to their source. I chatted with Athena Cassio on the last episode of our podcast about her work releasing female voices. As part of the conversation, we also spoke about the island of Cyprus itself. In 1974, Turkey invaded Cyprus. Today, more than 30% of the island is part of the Turkish Republic of Northern Cyprus, a country only recognized by Turkey as an independent state. Many families were forcibly relocated through the upheaval. There is so much that is unspoken around this great rip across the island. 
Athena told me how the younger generation are trying to lead their communities away from the silences around it. I'm really excited and interested in the work that art, the arts can do to around politics, I suppose, as well, to reveal some of the silences across our societies. A big silence in some ways is the, the politics of the, of the land of Cyprus and its extremely fraught and complicated history. Is there work being done in Cyprus, in northern Cyprus, that explores some of those silences that exist about the houses, about the communities? There is work that's been done. I don't think enough. Um, I think there's still this fear of keeping quiet. I, I, I still, I think there's still fear of what our history is, what our identity is. It's still very, very sensitive. And uh, we're still not courageous enough, I think, sometimes to really dig in and start um, understanding those wounds and why we are scared sometimes to, to reflect, put a mirror against ourselves, which I think that's what we need to be doing. But there, there are definitely work that's been done. There's uh, local playwrights that are, are, are writing constantly about this with not an, a nostalgic or a, a biased sort of uh, view, but truly engaging with, with, uh, understanding of what is happening we are the generation to be doing it my father's generation i think because they were really close to the trauma i don't think they they could have handled it in 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 that way i think we have a again we have a responsibility to look back to our history understand where we're coming from and and reach out it has been silence for a very long time Athena's energy and her passion to make change happen made me wonder how long change really takes to spread from these small communities to the wider world. Do you see change happening in other parts of Poland? I think yes. My answer was yes. The big cities, metropolis, are great borderlands now. Uh, and becoming more and more borderlands. And you have archipelago of different districts of the town, you know, small quarters, neighborhoods. You see, it grows, I call it now the, the small center of the world. You know, that there is a small town and you created a center of the world there. And I think there is something important in that, you know, that you give people and yourself possibility to live in the small center of the world. It's about being rooted, you know, being engaged in, in your neighborhood, in the community building. And that's a way people who can do it, they are, they don't have problems with opening themselves, with being uh, hospitable, uh, with being uh, empathic to the others. You know, when you have home, you can think about being hospitable. When do you not have home, uh, you, you hesitate, you know, you are uprooted somehow and you, your behavior towards strangers, toward newcomers, outsiders is based on prejudices very often about, based on your weakness and fear against the other. So to struggle with this fear, you invest in your home. It's a, it's just a beautiful idea, Christoph. I really love it. And I love the polyphony of, of small centers of the world. It's a gorgeous concept. Can you tell me, how would you say it in Polish, small centers of the world? Małe centrum świata. Christoph's idea that prejudice is often born out of our own displacement or lack of place in the world is really powerful. 
It also led me to think of all those who've been driven from their homes. Navroz Oramaris is an Iraqi Kurdish singer and freedom fighter who was silenced under the dictatorship of Saddam Hussein and eventually sought refuge in the UK. He now sings with the wonderful Citizens of the World Choir, a choir for people who are refugees, asylum seekers, migrants and the wider community of Londoners. The story that led him to the UK is a remarkable one. It was really a pleasure to hear about the Citizens of the World Choir generally and to hear a little bit about your story. And I wondered if you could share that with me and specifically potentially to think a little bit about how silence or being silenced has impacted on your, you and your work. It damaged me in, in many ways because when I was a child, I uh, became known in, in, my, in my city as, as a singer. Uh, uh, my story is very long, but I'm going to try to, to make it very short. Then I sang, I became a teenager, and then I sang against Saddam Hussein's regime. Then when I was arrested, and then I had to uh, sign a pledge to say from now on I'm not allowed to sing even among among my friends and my father has to sign the same pl uh, pledge and if if I were caught an, another time singing even among my friends uh, then I should accept the death penalty for myself and it was my first time and I was young and I was not even 17 years old uh, then uh, I stayed a few years I couldn't stay in Iraq anymore because I was under pressure and as a teenager as a singer I just wanted to express myself not to be silent uh, you know it's very difficult to keep a singer silent uh, and and then I joined the Kurdish revolution in in the revolution uh, my uh, duty was to sing uh, for people and to recruit people and to communicate with people emotionally because in those days, Saddam Hussein's regime was the most uh, strongest regime in, in Middle East. And so because of his jet wars, we couldn't uh, be active during daytime. But at nighttime, we were active. At, during uh, daytime, we used to hide in caves. And uh, then uh, I stayed there uh, in the revolution. And then illegally, I went to see my original tribe, which they, they came from north of Kurdistan uh, and on the map is called Southeast Turkey and we hate to call it Southeast Turkey uh, and the government in Turkey was a, a, a Turkish military fascist government and uh, I was arrested uh, there and, uh, and and then I was released on condition not to leave the city and I had to sign every morning at the police station saying I'm, I'm here and this is my signature and then one day, uh, some of our Kurdish freedom fighters from Iraq side, I'm still talking about Kurdistan, but it's been divided among those four countries. And officially, they are called Iran, Iraq, Turkey, and Syria. But uh, in reality, it's Kurdistan. And there are artificial borders. And uh, I was in a coffee shop. I met a friend of mine. And he said to me, hey, this is what happened last night. And one of your friends got arrested. And if you don't um, escape from Turkey he might reveal your name under the condition and this time the Turkish government definitely is going to extradite you to Iraq and which means you are going to be ex executed by Saddam Hussein's regime so find a way uh, I, well it's an extraordinary story and thank you so much for sharing it I mean unbelievable during that time in Turkey were you still singing were you, were you working as a musician 
Oh, in in Turkey, my goodness, that was the biggest crime. If you if you sing in Kurdish, or even if you could speak one or two sentences in Kurdish, that's it. That's the end of you. What What's interesting for me is listening to you talk about it, and it, you're phenomenally matter of fact about it. But presumably, you have many languages that you that you function in. How many languages do you speak? Yeah, in terms of languages, I speak. Uh, Arabic, uh, Farsi, Kurdish fluently, and I speak 60% of Turkish language, and I, uh, I understand 50% of the Hindi language, uh, a bit of Urdu, and I am trying deliberately to learn Latin and Greek in order to improve my English language because I'm not satisfied. How did you find the choir, the Citizen of the World Choir? Yeah, uh, I uh, well, I joined the choir in uh, in two thousand and eighteen, and the choir gave me, you know, the performance, the the platform to sing and to express myself in Britain, uh, in particularly in in London, and uh, I I really love it. And we've got we've got some great singers with us. Not every every single member is a singer. But that's not a, that's not the part the point of the choir. It's the communication, and it's like uh, communicating with people emotionally. We've got some lawyers, some doctors, engineers with us, uh, and and they are not singers, but they love singing. What the choir gave me, it, it gave me like another uh, another tongue, another 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 microphone, another language to to sing in. Sometimes we sing in Welsh. Uh, other times we sing in the languages that spoken in South Africa, in Kurdish, in Arabic, uh, in other languages. So it, it's an international uh, great choir. Oh, it's lovely. Well, you have a voice now. I mean, you must feel that. How does it feel to have a voice with you, to be able to talk about all these stories? It's our responsibility not to keep silent and, and uh, uh, to, to, fight, to, to fight the oppressor. Yeah, so uh, in England, it gives me more opportunity because uh, London gave me a passport. I can travel freely and, and sing in uh, uh, Ireland or America or Germany. So uh, I have the bigger responsibility now because uh, when I was singing in a small town, I, I would sing for that small town in Kurdistan and be isolated. No one would know about me. But in London, it's a different platform. London is the heart of the world. But I'll continue and uh, find find subject which which is kept uh, silence by force uh, or by fear. I just loved Navroz's comment that it's very difficult to keep a singer silent. So many artists in this podcast series talked of their commitment and need to speak out and have a voice. I've also thought about times when silence can also be necessary or more powerful. In your experience of... Um doing this extraordinary work um, over the last, what, more than 30 years. Have you experienced times when it's not appropriate to break the silences? Are there some silences which, as artists, we have a responsibility to keep quiet? Mm -hmm. When uh, Arvo Perth, the Estonian composer, you know very well about him, but he was our borderlander. 
uh, he received our award uh, of being borderlander. So it means the man who can cross the borders uh, and so on. And when he had a speech in our white synagogue about what means to be a borderlander, he said, but remember, there are borders which you shouldn't cross. Of course, there is something uh, in it very important for, uh, for our work that you should respect. Another thing is the time dimension. You know, when, for example, we publish, we have a publishing house and we publish a very painful book for Poles uh, about the Edwabna case. Uh, this is a small town, another small town not far from Sailing, where during the Holocaust, you know, Polish uh, part of the uh, community murdered uh, Jewish neighbors. And we published it after 10 years of our activity. And of course, it created a very controversial, you know, risky situation for our center. You know, there were politicians demanding, you know, to close down the center and so on. We are a local community center. You know, we are not only NGO supported from outside money, but we are center supported by local regional government, which is crucial for our work. And of course, be loyal to them, you know, to be in dialogue with them, to convince them that the way we spend this public money is good and uh, and so on. So I'm telling all this, uh, coming back to such um, difficult situations, like you touch very, very painful memory, you touch the wound, you open the wound. You know, breaking the silence is something what you can do only from inside, together with people. It reminds me a lot of a, I recorded for a podcast last year with a wonderful former Yugoslavian theatre director who's been working in Bosnia with young people. And she talked a lot about um, the silences in Bosnia still today. She felt that it was unethical to be breaking some of those silences and talking about the past where there wasn't the support for people. Like once you opened the floodgates of the stories and the memories without proper support to help people, what could you do with those, you know, the kind of the wounds? And it sounds like um, in some ways you agree with her, you know, you just need to be there. You need to have the time and build the trust and be there for the fallout. Mm-hmm. This is a, something I understood during Yugoslav war and experiencing what happened in in breaking of Yugoslavia. You You never know what can happen with you under dramatic circumstances uh, when your life and life of your children is at stake uh, at, at the very moment. You know, you never know how you will behave as a mother, as a father of family, uh, when the life is threatened. So the lesson I've got is don't uh, judge people. You don't have legitimacy to judge people work with them, try to understand why it happened. When they use the language of hatredness, uh, when they use the language which is painful, you know, for the others, we use uh, this slogan, you know, very often, everything starts from the language of hatred. But it is not true. Nothing starts from the language of hatred. There is always something before something in your childhood, in your family, in your quartier, which makes you 
feel this prejudice of fear against the others, you know, against opening, against sharing uh, with others. So th there is something uh, before, and and we are somehow responsible for that, you know, and the, in schools, as teachers, as uh, local authorities, you know, as a government, as many structures uh, which uh, allows that people are not capable at the very moment to curb the challenge of tolerance, yes, of being empathic. Uh, so you go deeper, you go to this, uh, to these roots and try to raise questions to help people with this struggle, with this process, because what, what is important, uh, uh, Josephine, uh, in all these things is something what I call good memory. You know, people after conflicts have bad memories about the past, about the neighbors, about the other side of the conflict they were engaged in. But these bad memories are not everything. You know, it's not 100% of bad memories. There are some good memories, some needs of good, make a good gesture. And the problem is that we do not know how to dig up this good thing from inside the community or personal individual. We have culture of conflict, you know, in media, in language, in school, in culture. There is a clash. Be yourself, keep your identity, means against the others. You know, you have enemies, you are not the same, uh, and so on. So we know this negative language of defending yourself. In Mostar, when we work, for example, people were hiding memories of helping neighbors, you become a hero because you, you were struggling with the others. But there were many gestures like that in Mostar. People helped each other. But there was silence about that. When we only came as outsiders, and sometimes it helps to be outsider, did you help each other during the war? And suddenly you, you have people crying because there was first time somebody asked them about that. Uh, so our work very much is about opening culture from inside to search elements, uh, you know, sources, uh, ideas in the cultures which, which help to open it from inside and make it uh, less restrictive, you know, as it usually is today. Christoph's mission to start difficult conversations and open old wounds so that they could heal properly and release good memories resonated with me during my conversation with Athena and the struggle to speak out about such fresh trauma in Cyprus. I was reading up on my on my kind of the history of Cyprus. I don't think I had fully absorbed how recent the division was. You know, 1974, it's really recent. It's so raw, but I mean, we, we need to talk about <laughs> yes my grandmother uh, left her house my father was born in the north in uh, Drachonas, which is a village that's not it's occupied now i've been once to the north part i don't have friends from the north part where if i go abroad i will be uh, i will i will connect with with people it's just here it feels segregated and i mean and i think it's a good time for theater to act to make those bridges because this is our identity. I mean, there's a new play now coming. It's called Out of Necessity. And I'm really looking forward to see it by two women as theater makers, which, which is exploring this issue. So the, the work's been created and there's this encouragement about 
new plays and writing new plays and cultivating this voice, this authorship. Cyprus has been maybe sometimes uh, waiting from, for the voices of Greece or the voices of England to write our narratives. And now we are, I think, now we are creating our narrative and we are becoming the authors of ourselves. So this is really good. This is really encouraging. Do you use silence a lot in your work as a director? I try to understand the situation of what's happening between the two characters. So I think I don't use them in a technical way. I use I try to use them in in a way that it's meaningful regarding the relationship between the two characters. So um I think I do use silences but not in a way to make the point that there is the silence, but just if there's a need for the for the character to be silenced or for that moment in the relationship to have the silence. Obviously, we've had a year of silence in the theatres. What have you done as an artist? What have you created and been working on and thinking about? How has it been for you this year of silence? Here in Cyprus, we've we had a couple of lockdowns and then we opened again. Theatres are open now, which is an amazing, but half the capacity. Uh, so... I have been working on a play by Sam Shepard, which as a theatre maker, I made the decision two years ago. And it was interesting for me as I grew through these projects about women's voice, women's voice, to look back at this decision of making a work by an American male playwright. Um, But we've, we've, uh, it was amazing to go back to rehearsals, um, to be with people, to talk about plays, but I think more about going back to community and when we had the chance to share the work with 25 audience members because that was the permitted capacity how important though that uh, coming together was it, it feels like the pandemic was uh, just like the exciting incident of what of of an exposed everything that was troubling about uh, systems, about uh, governments, about health systems, I'm afraid to say, but it, maybe it's, this is only the beginning of, of how the future is looking. Wow, say, say more about what you mean by that. But the pandemic is one event, then something else will come, will happen. I mean, we're seeing climate change of what we're doing. I mean, in a theatrical play, when there is an ex- external event, something outside of the world of the play happens, it brings everyone um, into conflict. There's pressures, things change, the situation changes. So everything bubbles up, all the problems of, of the society, of the problems of the community, of the problems of a family come out. And with this uh, pandemic, I mean, here in Cyprus, uh, we're trying to, I don't know how you say it in English, the, the status of the, the artist status, we're trying to, to get really really simple things happening so so artists could could have a way of surviving this uh, this time or we've seen government corruption or we've seen people going up the streets demanding things i think the pandemic just pushed everything out it's like a pressure play i don't know it's like everything has come out the me too um force now that people are are telling their stories i think it has come out from this silence people's voices are louder now maybe because they've been silenced i love the idea from athena that silence can amplify our voices christoph also spoke about the power of silence when i uh, when i speak about silence it is you know uh, not only about calming down yourself which is very important 
but about uh, giving the room to the other. Creating silence is calling for the presence of the other. That's how it is important. The silence is so important. When we are speaking, speaking, making uh, noise, there is no room. Even if we have good intentions, you know, and we could speak about the others and so on. But if we are not shut up and, and give time and space for silence, there is a little chance that the other will appear in the, in the way of the presence of the own voice, different from ours which more and more you work on that, you understand that this voice comes also from yourself, that it was, you know, the silence was in also in yourself, that you were tabooing or keeping in silence something that is in, inside you. Uh, and suddenly, because I don't believe that the other is only the external uh, presence, the other is very much about something that lives and is part of ourselves, there is no me without the other. So to, to become yourself, in fact, yeah, you, you, you need this other voice. You need to silence yourself. It was really a huge privilege to speak to Navroz, Athena and Krzysztof, to be silent in order to hear their voices. As part of our conversation, Krzysztof had talked about the power of the anticipatory silence in the theatre, before the performance begins. I love the idea that the silence of our COVID year has allowed us to hear other voices and hopefully to create change. As part of our conversation, Navroz shared a Kurdish folk song. We'll play out our podcast with his voice. Next time on the Dash Arts podcast, will it complete the series exploring censorship and self-censorship from Beckett to Brexit? You can subscribe to our podcast via our website or wherever you get your podcast to ensure you don't miss it. And if you like the Dash Arts podcast, follow the show, share, and please leave us a review. It helps us stay visible and not silent and would mean the world to us. The Dash Arts podcast was produced by Rachel Head. I'm Josephine Burton, and we'll be back in a fortnight with more conversations. Thank you for listening. The poor Ay, 
آبتی من بند وام بحران آخ یا مان یا مان آی لی ای 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 